Rewinding. Rewinding Kaya FM on FM Rewind. Sidebar with Cindy. Every Monday to Thursday, 7 to 8 p.m. on Kaya FM 95.9. Sidebar with Cindy. On Kaya FM 95.9. <laughs> Um, KFM 95.9, home of the Afropolitan. Thank you, Tate John. He'll be back tomorrow evening with another show. It's just gone 7 o'clock, and welcome to Sidebot Cindy with me, Cindy Siwe Fansale. Um, if you missed any of the podcasts, you can go to kfm.co.za and catch up with them on FM Rewind. Um, if you're listening in from out of Johannesburg or out, or out of Gauteng, you can catch KFM on the DSTV Audio Bouquet, Channel 861, or you can listen live at kfm.co.za. Medical issues, sex and family, finance, parenting and emotional development. Sidebar with Cindy. Every Monday to Thursday, 7 to 8 p.m. on Kaya FM 95.9. Kaya FM 95.9, home of the Afropolitan. The ninth South African AIDS conference is currently taking place in Durban and it'll it'll end on um, Friday the 14th of June. And... um, this is a it's a big it's a big conference. It's the second largest conference um, in the world, and it brings together over three thousand people from from everywhere um, to discuss um, HIV and AIDS and the progress that has been made um, with the pandemic. Um, I'm always interested to know what the latest developments are in terms of medication and um, vaccines and 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 just 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 new stuff on the scene. But I'm also always interested to find out. How other countries have um, developed their attitudes towards HIV. So I'm not sure how many of you know this, but there are a few countries that still ban HIV positive individuals from, you know, getting a work permit or or, or residence in that country. So if you want to go and work in, in a specific country, the countries that, that, that do this, part of your application would include a medical and part of that medical is a forced HIV test. And if you test HIV positive, then your 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 request or your application is 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 rejected. And you know, when you think about such things, certainly for me, um, as a, as an HIV clinician and with, with HIV being very close to my heart, none of those things make sense. So, whenever conferences like this happen, I'm always interested to know that what's the progress with regards to educating the leaders um, and the powers that be in those countries that still enforce travel restrictions on people that are living with HIV. Later on in the show, we'll be chatting to Professor Rifilwe um, Paswana Mafuya. She's the chair of the ninth South African AIDS Conference um, this year, and she'll be joining us telephonically from Durban. I'm joined in studio by Dr. Mervyn Tyra. He's an HIV clinician, and he's had, he's got 30 years experience, over 30 years experience in this field. And he'll be telling us about the early days in South Africa. You know, and so when I say early days, I mean the days when there was no medication, nothing. He'll be talking us talking us through that. And the last part of the show, we'll be chatting to a young man that was born with HIV, and but he only found out later on in his life that he was living with HIV. He's probably 13, turning 37 this year and he'll be sharing his story of what it means to be you know to have to have you know started off not knowing what was wrong with you always sick and then having start medication and the, the changes and the challenges that have happened um in his life it's four minutes past seven and you're listening to sidebar cindy on kai fm 95.9 welcome to sidebar cindy move thank you so much for being here 
It's a great pleasure to be here. So, um, Mervyn, I think my first question, and I, and I ask this of everyone that's got, that's got a, a niche that they that they've chosen and they that they work in. Why why did you choose to work in the field of of HIV? That's a very nice question, actually, and I'd love to answer that straight away by saying that um, I was a good medical student and I always planned to work in clinical medicine, but being slightly eccentric and an obvious gay man, um, I was kind of slightly anxious that I might never be attended to by patients because you know my hair was different or I mm. wore different clothes or whatever so I kind of thought quite early in my career that I should probably go into pathology and work in a laboratory I went for my first interview to go to do a registrar um, uh, you know, to, to, to specialize in, in pathology yeah. and um, looked at the person who was interviewing me who was the most obscure person I won't mention any names but I just thought to myself I couldn't possibly spend five years working with this person so I became by default a GP for a few years mm. um, so this is we're talking about 1990 1991 and uh, under the sort of supervision of a very special um, HIV clinician and in, an infectious diseases specialist called Professor Stephen Miller who still works uh, actively in the field but more peripherally uh, here in Johannesburg I started looking after the primary care aspects of people living with HIV as I say 1990, 1991 and I did so for about three years um, and left for the UK at the end of 93 to specialize specifically in HIV medicine, mm. which I subsequently did. Um, I was 25, 26 years old. I was looking after people who had been diagnosed with HIV, who absolutely had no prospect of survival in the grand scheme of things. Because there was no medication back then. <laughs> In 1987, the first antiretroviral drug uh, was put into clinical trial and subsequently made available to patients living with HIV. That was called Zidovudine or AZT as we call it. It's still around in South Africa and is used largely in second line therapy um, when patients have failed first line therapy very much more in the government setting um, it has lots of problems and you know in on a, a worldwide scale is probably far less used than it ever was mm -hmm. but there were several other antiretrovirals that kind of came into development quite soon after that and in the early 90s we had D4T we had DDI we had DDC these were all I'm just using sort of abbreviations of what their names were but none of those drugs are actually available here anymore but they all came out in a very strangely piecemeal fashion because people were just desperately trying to find medications that worked so in South HIV. Africa so in South Africa in the early 90s how would I have accessed treatments if I was diagnosed with HIV it was a disaster it was a disaster if you had no money you could you wouldn't get anything mm. if you were in the government setting 
I remember very clearly that you had to be able to prove that your HIV was contracted specifically through a blood blood transfusion mm. in order to get access to Zidovudine through government services. So a majority of people weren't infected through blood transfusions, mm. through sexual transmission. And as a consequence of that, people were denied a drug that was at that time thought to be well it was the only thing that we could use they used it in terribly high doses and it had ridiculously awful side effects on people and you know the clinical trials that were done using AZT Zidovudine monotherapy were proven to be ineffective in the grand scheme of things subsequently Mm. but then Clinical trials continued and we started adding DDI or DDC into AZT uh, experienced patients. And then we compared that with people starting dual therapy, AZT, DDI or DDC in their own right. And we saw that they did better. Mm. By 1996, I was already working in the United Kingdom. The first studies showing that triple combination therapy suppressed virus and viral replication considerably well and gave us true hope that we could actually control control the pandemic on a global scale. However, we all know that it took many, many, many more years before treatment since 1996 to have as adequate access as we now have Mm. pretty much all over the world. Wow. And that's the voice of Dr. Mervyn Tyra, an HIV clinician um, with over 30 years experience in the field. The time has just gone 10 minutes past seven. And we have Professor Rufidwe Paswana Mafuya, the chair of the 9th South African AIDS Conference online. Thank you so much and thank you for joining us on KFM 95.9. Thank you and good evening. So, Prof, um, so the, the, the conference is going on until Friday, but I know that you, um, it opened on the 11th. And um, ooh, ooh, the, the, the new Minister of Health, um, Dr. William Kize, has spoken. I know that the Deputy President, ooh, um, Didi Mabuza, was also present. Um, so far, um, what, is, what has been the most topical issue that, that almost everyone is talking about? Oh, thank you very much. And just a minor correction, the Deputy President is yet to come. He's, he hasn't come yet. Oh, okay. Minister. Sorry about that. Yes, he was there, yeah. Um, yeah, what has been topical has been the issue of complacency. Yes. That uh, there's looming perception that the epidemic is over in spite of uh, alarming Uh, that show that the epidemic is persistent uh, and and it has also been the fact that as a result of that uh, perception uh, the political will seems to be declining Uh, funding uh, uh, to support epidemic control seems to be going down Mm. yet the response to the epidemic is still not equal to its magnitude Mm. and and if things were to continue like this all the gains we have made may be lost Uh, so in this conference we are strongly you know voicing our 
evidence-based, you know, uh, 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 recommendations or reflections because they are not just matters of the heart. Uh, we're speaking based on evidence, you know, that uh, the epidemic uh, is, is, is uh, growing with uh, uh, the number of people living with HIV, you know, now surviving because of uh, antiretroviral treatment. Mm. It means we've got a huge number of people living with HIV and in this case I mean, in South Africa we are at about 7.2 million people living with HIV and as you may be aware globally it's 37 million people mm. living with HIV I mean this is the largest epidemic yet uh, slowly and, and gradually, we're not putting this as an emergency, yeah. you know, uh, and, and also in terms of uh, incidents, you know, the new cases, of course, have been going down uh, through the joint efforts, you know, of government and yeah. partners and so on, but they are not going down rapidly mm. enough. You know, yeah, so, so we really still have a lot to do, and this is the message we cannot afford to be complacent. We still have a lot to do, and we must wake up uh, before it's too late. You know, uh, uh, so that's, that's what we are trying to do: refuel the dimming political wheels and reboot government's commitment towards epidemic control and address obstacles and challenges, especially the social drivers of poverty, yeah. unemployment, you know, and so on, continue with the battle. Yeah. Well, um, if you've just tuned in, you're listening to Sidebar Cindy on KFM 95.9. We're taking your calls on 86 959 You can SMS us on 36959. And you can join the chat on social media, hashtag um, Sidebar Cindy, hashtag KFM Talk. And I'm talking to Professor um, um, Refulio Paswana Mafuya. She's the chairperson of the 9th South African AIDS Conference, which is taking place um, in Durban. And I also have Dr. Mervyn Tyra in um, studio, and he's an HIV clinician with over 30 years experience in this field. So, um, Mervyn, you heard what Ooh, Professor Refilwe mentioned. And I think what I always say is that there was a stage when HIV was in our faces all the time. And I think we then got HIV fatigued and, you know, we saw these messages and it didn't mean anything to us anymore. And eventually kind of fell off, fell off the radar. What can we do to make the message, you know, uh, uh, Professor James McIntyre always says we need to make the message sexy again. What can we do to, to, to get HIV back onto people's um, minds I think that the issue here in South Africa in sub-Saharan Africa is no different from a sociological perspective than it is anywhere else in the world I mean, there's no doubt that in America in Europe in Britain certainly after 25 years of working there that the same issue of HIV becoming less of a crisis in people's lives you know and therefore falling off their radar um has been you know it's been an issue for very many years and i mean certainly 10 15 years ago in the uk we saw a huge resurgence in the numbers of people being infected mm. And alongside that, you know, massive increases in the number of uh, new other sexually transmitted infections. Now, the thing is, is that 
we know the treatment introduced at a very early stage in a person's journey with HIV is ultimately the best approach yeah. at a, uh, on a global and scale. And so, that's the universal test and treatment. Yes. If you test HIV positive, we're going to start you on treatment as soon as we can. Precisely. Which is the new guideline, mm. in a sense. It never was. And it's only, you know, in more recent years that the concept of treatment as prevention has started to filter through. So anybody who's HIV positive who has detectable levels of virus should be on treatment so that they can rest assured that they don't transmit virus. The bigger problem in a country or in sub-Saharan Africa, but South Africa's, you know, in addition, is the fact that it is still such a highly stigmatized disease. And that is the challenge. And the biggest challenge of all is to try to normalize this in people's lives. You know, Britain has 80 million people and we have 80,000 people living with HIV. That's less than 0.1% of the population. And we have HIV clinicians crawling over each other and politically fighting with each other to be of importance. There's no problem there. It's been, you know, it hasn't been dealt with entirely, but here we have 60 million people living, and as Professor said, over 7 million people living with HIV that we know of. That's 10% of a population. If people tested regularly and it was normalized, go to clicks, go to clinics, go to DISCHEM, do rapid testing, find out your, your status and deal with it at an early stage, you're going to have a much bigger impact on the forward transmission of virus in the community. And I think without a very, very strong and activistic sort of approach to making people test and get onto treatment, we're not going to break this problem. And and, 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 and a lot of it is the messaging around around testing. So I, I'm, I'm full of hope. I'm, I'm an eternal optimist. So whenever I encourage people to test, my whole thing is, okay, so we test you for HIV and you test positive, but do you know that if you start treatment and you suppress the virus, you can live a long, healthy, happy life. Um, you can have kids, you can breastfeed, you don't have to have a Caesar when you deliver, you can have sexual intercourse without a condom if you want to conceive, and even if you don't want to conceive because your virus is undetectable. Those are the messages that I put out before, you know, like with the messaging, and I'm quickly, I'm quickly saying all the positive things that can come from, that can, you know, that are part of, of living with HIV. And we need to do a lot of clinician training as well because most people that get told what their status is don't have a, a positive patient journey with that and and the things that are said to them stick in their hearts and and then you know have an, an adverse effect on how they deal with the virus in their lives i totally agree with you and i again say that it's not a, a problem that's specific to southern africa mm. this is a problem that's universal united kingdom you know that's my frame of reference for 25 years, you know, GPs had no clue how to deal with HIV-related issues. So they're busy in other aspects of their, of their work. So HIV took a very, very low profile. And we, we had the same sort of issues. Sadly, you know, we're talking 35 years into an epidemic, a global pandemic, and young doctors are still no better qualified to deal with HIV-related you know, therapeutic 
psychosocial issues, whatever they were talking about, they are, they are no better qualified than they were when I graduated yeah. in 1989. And I find this absolutely tragic. Hmm. Well, we'll talk about this after the break. I'll continue talking to Professor Rifulia Paswanamafuya and Dr. Mervyn Tyra. Kaya FM 95.9, home of the Afropolitan. Sidebar Cindy with me, Cindy Fansale. And I'm in studio with Dr. Mervyn Tyra, an HIV clinician. And I'm also joined telephonically by Professor Rifulio Paswana Mafuya, who's the chair of the 9th South African AIDS Conference, which is taking place in Durban and ends on Friday. So, Prof, before we let you go, I'd like to ask, um, you know, I mean, I've attended a few conferences and it's always great to meet up with um, scientists and doctors and, and fellow-minded people from all over the world. And I'm always concerned about, after such a conference, how do we then drill the information down to the community, the people that need, need this the most? Yes, um, uh, thank you very much. Um, uh, at our conference, uh, we have uh, put uh, people who are affected by HIV at the center of, of, of the conference program. Uh, uh, you know, from the planning level, uh, we have representation in the organizing committee. Yes. Uh, and we also have ensured that we help, you know, them attend the conference and thanks to, to our sponsors because we managed to bring 500 delegates. Uh, and they, uh, for each of our plenary sessions, we have what we call a community voice where uh, uh, we either have a person living with HIV or uh, 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 a person using drugs or uh, a sex worker, you know, our high-risk groups or okay. people uh, serving in the uh, HIV network. Um, uh, so we are very conscious uh, of the fact that if we want uh, to have a sustainable uh, uh, response, we cannot leave the community behind. Yes, that's uh, very important. Uh, these are people who know and understand the dynamics. Uh, uh, even as we speak about how to change the situation in South Africa, uh, we, we really uh, uh, need to understand the dynamics that, that happen on the ground because uh, even if we have trained nurses or doctors, mm. uh, uh, you know, without uh, uh, understanding these contextual issues, uh, you know, it becomes uh, difficult to sustain the response. You can have uh, services, but people will not utilize them maximally. Yeah. So we really uh, have been uh, joining hands together with them ever since we started planning this conference to date. And that is why you see us having such a successful uh, collaborative conference where you don't see ticketing and stuff like that. Yes. Uh, uh, because uh, uh, the understanding is that we are in this together. Uh, uh, we, we need to join hands and, and going forward. Uh, we will need to put more effort mm. into supporting communities. Thank you so much, Professor um, Rifilwe. Um, um, Paswana Mafuya, the chair of the 9th South African AIDS Conference, and we wish you well for the rest of the conference. Thank you very much, and have a blessed evening. Thank you.
So you can call us on 86 Um Two of the um, other guests on the show are, are ready and waiting. But before we, we chat to them, we're taking a call from Timbisa. Um, Tandi, thank you so much for calling and welcome to Sidebar Cindy. Hi, Dr. Cindy. Um, I would like to confirm something. So my blood type is positive, all right. But then I've always had people saying that um, HIV is very difficult to detect uh, in the... Um, Group O, basically. So I'd just like to confirm if is that true. Okay, I'll ask Dr. Mervyn Tyra to answer that. Thank you for that question. Thank you so much. Hello, Hello, my dear. Good evening. Thank you for asking that question. Um, I can honestly say to you that there is absolutely no evidence anywhere on the planet that blood type predicts your susceptibility to HIV infection. Nothing whatsoever. The only genetic predisposition to a semi-resistance to HIV is the Delta-232 mutation, Mm. which is, if it's absent, um, as what we call a homozygote, so you've got both genes from a parent, from a father and a mother, they, those patients are resistant to HIV infection. Besides that, there is no evidence whatsoever that blood group predicts. So I hope that puts that into perspective for yeah, you. Yeah, so this is the myth, um, Mervyn, that's been around for quite a while. It comes up, it comes up time, and, time and again. So I hope it's clear that your blood group has got nothing to do with um, um, your susceptibility to, to HIV infection. So thank you so much for that call. We now chat to Professor um, Kangelani Zama. She's the uh, Executive Director of Social Aspects of Public Health at the Human Sciences um, Resource um, Council. Thank you so much for joining us. You're most welcome and good evening, uh, and, uh, Apologies. He is joining us. Um, <laughs> um, so the work that you do um, is very important, um, the social aspects of public health. I mean, we know that HIV, apart from the biological component, the HIV pandemic, there's a large um, social aspect to it. And for the longest time, um, I think, as, as, as medical doctors involved in the field and as nurses, we've tried to change people's behavior um, just by telling them what to do. You must have sex in this way. You must use condoms. You must do that. And over the years, that has evolved. Um, science has brought us the hashtag U equals U, where we know that um, if you take antiretroviral treatment properly and your viral load is suppressed, then you can actually have sexual intercourse with, with, without a condom. But at the beginning, we were very heavy-handed and very, and very harsh in the way we dealt with, with, with our patients. Um, any comments around that, um, Prof, Prof, Prof Zoom? Yeah. We thank you very much, uh, and, and thank you for, for having us again. Uh, we are faced with a, a situation whereby uh, knowledge that we impact out there does not uh, necessarily translate to, to action. We, we we provide information, we educate, maybe not as much as we are supposed to do, mm. uh, given uh, what we've seen, especially among young children, the youth, for example, of the 15 to 24-year-olds, yes. where the statistics they are, are alarming. Uh, what we, we, we need to really balance the information that we convey out there. It is all good and well that we've got uh, antiretroviral treatment that we can put people on uh, on treatment. Yes. But putting people on treatment, that's the ultimate goal. 
the ultimate goal of, uh, of, of living is to live negative, live without uh, HIV. That is what uh, we want. Now, in com- communicating out there, we need to balance our information to an extent that, uh, you know, it does not create some sort of uh, complacency where we say, well, doesn't matter what happens, at least uh, uh, even if I get infected, I will still have uh, access to, to medication. That's not what we want. Okay, but Prof, okay, so, but Prof, so in, the work, in the work that you've done at the HSRC, um, you know, do, pe- do people actually say such? Is there, is there, any, is there any evidence or have, have there been any papers supporting that? Because I've heard that sta- statement many times and it, it especially comes up when the issue of U equals U comes up. Because one of the reasons why the, the, you, you know, the undetectable equals untransmittable hashtag is, is taking long to gain traction in South Africa is because the gatekeepers feel that we are encouraging people to be reckless with their sexual behavior by saying to them, well, you know, if you're on treatment, um, you're not going to spread HIV, you don't have to use condoms. So is, is, there, is there evidence to support that statement that you've, that, you know, that you've, that you've made? What, uh, it's more what I call like a triangulation of information. Okay. But we see, what we see in the data is that uh, we've got a lot of people being put on treatment. Yes. But at the same time, we still have a lot of people who are uh, getting newly infected with the HIV, uh, which is the incident. And it is those people that actually contribute to the pool of people that are living uh, with HIV. So if you look at these statistics, you see that uh, the numbers of people that are newly getting infected are going down over the years. But you still have a big pool of people, the number, the absolute number of people that get infected every year. For mm-hmm. example, in 2017, 231,000 uh, people zero converted. So it means they started HIV negative at the beginning of the year. By the end of the year, they were infected HIV. That's 231,000 people that we're talking about. Yeah. And, and we've been preventing infection. We shouldn't be having those people. And if you look... In the, in, the, in the data, it is very clear that if you compare like a different years of, of the studies that we collect, among people who are above 31 years, you can see that the HIV epidemic is aging. So it means people are living longer because they're on antiretroviral treatment. Mm. But there's no change among those that are younger than 35 years, which means the new infections are still coming in mm. that sustain the epidemic. And that can only be explained by you know, uh, this that we're talking about, that there is some sort of a, 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 an element that seems to be coming in that uh, the more we know about HIV is the less we really take it serious, whilst it is still a problem that we face, and it is a big problem that we are facing right now, especially among youth. It's really a big uh, situation that we have. Okay, Prof, we'll keep you on the line. We'll take a few calls. We have um, Untabi Singh calling us from Kempton Park. Untabi Singh, welcome to Sidebar Cindy. Hello, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. I'm good. Um, I have a concern with, uh, but uh, I think my uh, my question has been answered by the, the professor because I wanted to find out how possible is it when uh, one partner is on ARVs and the viral load is very undetectable and the other one is HIV negative. 
what are the chances of the un, the positive one infecting the negative uh, partner? Okay, thank you for that um, question. And Tabi saying, I'll ask ooh, Dr. Mervyn Tyra to, to quickly answer it before we take the next call. Mervyn, uh, you uh, equals... Yes, yes, good evening, my dear. There is irrefutable and unquestionable evidence from all um, many studies all over the world proving that in zero what we call zero discordant couples so one partner is positive and the other one is negative where the positive person is on treatment that there is no transmission to the negative partner now, in the very, very big studies that have been done, there are always some of the negative partners that get infected. And when they have looked scientifically at the cause and, and sequenced the viruses, they look at the virus in the laboratory, they can see that it's not the partner who is positive who's given them the virus. They've got the virus from somewhere else. They've had sex with somebody else. So U equals U is unquestionably so that's a three use is unquestionably fabulous just believe the scientific community that part of all the story is correct human beings are human beings and people have sex with other people without their partners knowing some people have sex with other partners with their partner knowing and feel very happy to do so it you know we we all make up you know, we make decisions and and uh, live our lives the way we want to do so within the constructs of social normality and within the constructs of your relationship and communication with your partner. The thing is, is that when it comes to sex, people don't often tell the truth. And so people, you, you know, you, you might be positive on treatment and therefore your partner does not get HIV from you. And as the professor that was speaking earlier said, well, you know, there's still all these people getting infected. It's not the people who know that they have HIV and who are on treatment that are transmitting virus. It's all the undiagnosed people who are merrily carrying on pretending that they don't have it or that it's not their problem who are doing the transmitting. And that's, so, that's an important concept mm. for people to understand because the, the hashtag U equals U helps us think differently about living with HIV. And that's the reason yes. why we keep, we keep pushing that information out there. We'll take a quick call from Okanisa from Proteagli. Um, welcome to Sidebar Cindy on KFM 95.9. Hi, how are you? Good, thank you. I'm good. Please um, ask you to me. I want to find out. Let's say you've been on, um, on treatment for some time and then um, when you go back to check, they say that your viral is starting to decline. And then I want to know what's happened after this. Do you get introduced to a new medication? What's happening in South Africa? I just want to know what's happened after this. Okay. So let me understand the question properly. So you're saying you've been on treatment for a while and then you go yeah. back for a checkup and what is starting to decline? And then I your viral is now starting to decline. It means you're not responding to, to the... Um, Okay. Oh, so your viral, oh. the viral, the viral load being the amount of HIV in your blood is starting to go up. Yeah, it's starting to go up. Yes. Okay, so that's okay. So, uh, so I'll ask, I'll ask Dr. Tyra to answer that, and then we'll chat to uh, Mrs. Olga Barnes after that. Okay. So basically, what's happening there? The aim of antiretroviral therapy, of effective antiretroviral therapy, is to suppress the virus in your system. It's designed to con to control the way that the virus replicates, i.e., makes more of itself, and you want out of effective therapy 
um, a complete reduction in the amount of virus that's detectable in the system. And that's where we call it undetectable. Right. So different tests will give you different levels of undetectability. But basically, every time you go to the doctor and get your blood test done and they say undetectable, that's good news. When the virus starts to go up, it goes up for, you know, the virus goes up. It goes up for many reasons. One, you've forgotten to take your medications. Two, there's been a ma- massive shortage of a particular antiretroviral nationwide and people are struggling to get the drug that they're supposed to be on and you know there are countless reasons why people start to fail therapy it's at that point that the therapy needs to be changed to a more effective therapy in order to regain suppression of the virus because ultimately that is what the goal is keep that virus undetectable i hope that answers your question can you, sir? Can you, sir? Thank you so much. Okay, great stuff. Great stuff. So we have um, Mrs. Olga Barnes online, and she's from the National Prosecuting Authority, and she's also one of the speakers at the at the ninth South African um, AIDS conference. And the reason why we we have her on as a guest is because, as I mentioned earlier on, there are countries that um, discriminate against people living with HIV. So you can you can visit some of those countries. Um, some of them. Just to get a visa to get into the country, you'd have to go through an HIV, an HIV test. But we also have situations back home. Like, for example, I, uh, I was told of um, people that are doing rapid HIV tests on domestic workers before they, um, before they hire them. And that is a violation of human rights, right? We, we, we don't force people to test. That is unacceptable. And someone on Twitter has just said that they think that compulsory testing should be introduced at schools and and clinics and so on. And again, that's a violation of human rights. So thank you so much to Mrs. Olga Barnes for joining us. And she's speaking, she speaks about stigma in the community. So we'll chat to her and let's hear what she has to say about about what I've just said. Thank you so much for being on the show with us. Hi, good evening. How are you? I'm good, thank you. And thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, but I just want to speak under correction. I'm not here in the capacity of NPA, but in my personal capacity since I'm also living with HIV AIDS for the past 15 years now. So I only work at NPA, but I can also answer on that question that you were saying, uh, the violation of human rights. I I also agree with that one since uh, for kids, uh, we will tamper with the constitution. There's no way that we can... uh, children as much as we want to uh, help, the, especially the primary school children or the crash children, go, children that goes to crash, but that will be the violation of the constitution. So I don't think we can go to that extreme to test people before we employ them. I don't know whether I'm right. No, well, I agree with that. I'm still talking to Dr. Mervyn Tyra, an HIV clinician with over 30 years experience. And we also have Mrs. Olga Barnes online. She's at the conference and um, she's, she's a person that's living with HIV. And we were discussing um, um, stigma um, before we went for our break. So, Olga, coming back to you. Um, um, and yes, we agree with you that compulsory testing um, is, not, is not the way to go because that really is a violation of, 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 of human rights. Um, and you've been living with HIV, as you mentioned, for, for 15 years. 15 years, yes. Um, when you were diagnosed, um, what, what was your patient's journey like? How did you find out and then what then led you to, to start speaking about stigma within the community? 
I should say it was quite a journey. Eh? Finding out your HIV positive, especially those days, um, I got diagnosed 2005. It was still new. People were still scared. It was still this killer disease. So my first experience was at my workplace, especially I worked at a, a certain company as an IT uh, system administrator. And um, I just, after I found out, I stayed uh, from work for about two days. Then I decided to go, there's still life outside, go back to work. You still have a daughter of two, three years old. Um, I went back to work. The first person I disclosed was my supervisor then. Mm. And... Um, and I don't want to sound racist, but uh, it was a white company. I was the only color person of color in that company. And, you know, the stigma that I experienced was my first stigma. Uh, I was so stigmatized and it was so harsh because the following day, I saw people uh, were but skeptic and uh, I don't know. And acting strange towards you. Acting strange, yes. Because, but the next day you won't. You, you won't imagine my chair that we were sitting in an open plane but we were like viewing you know as certain administrators you will have to to view the whole the keys that and the course that's coming in so we use each other chairs it's not one chair for the specific person but my chair specifically was marked my cup in the kitchen was marked the ladies uh, we had three ladies then those ladies refused they even asked that they should uh, give breaks to go outside to use the toilet. They refused to use the toilet with me. That was honorable. That was now back in 2005. It was, I went, it went on for about months and I just resigned. I just couldn't anymore. Stigma still that I'm experiencing still at my workplace, not in this high level, mm -hmm. but now I'm currently from Bloemfontein. And you know what? I think still people, it's still, uh, I don't say people is uneducated. I mm. just think people is ignorant. People it's refuse to understand and accept where we are with HIV. They still want to hang on to the old killer disease. And I just asked someone earlier, uh, one of the people that attend the conference, and I asked this uh, lady and a guy, since you guys are here at the conference, mm. um, and you leave here, isn't it to come to the conference to, to get information, to hear how far we stand with the HIV AIDS? Will you date the HIV AIDS person? And I'm telling you both, they were young people, they said no way. So still people, still it's not, we're not there yet. People still don't want to accept us. And really as much as they say no, it's fine, it's HIV, but people don't go to that extreme where they say I will date like my husband. That I will date a, uh, especially the young ones or even the old ones. I will yeah. date a HIV AIDS positive person. So stigma is still real. I still experience, especially my husband is younger than me. Yeah. I, expe I experience a lot of stigma from my in-laws. They totally don't want to accept me. They don't want to accept my children. And as much as I'm the only positive one. It's so sad that my in-laws don't even want to touch my children, and we are in the 21st century. And they are, they are literate people, they educate uh, educated people, it's not people that are illiterate. And Olga, so, so your in-laws have found out your status because of the work that you do? Yes, because I'm very active on social media. I felt for years I've been living in silence and I was dying slowly inside. 
and me being a verbal person, as open as I am, still people will find ways to say, ah, the reason why you're HIV positive because you like to party too much. You always had something bad to attach to it. And it's not like you just HIV positive because maybe because with me in my case I was even infected by the pastor sure. in church and I was a church lady then. Mm. And do you find that um, I mean you so you come from the coloured community? Do you find that yes. the way the way HIV is portrayed in South Africa, it comes across as a disease that is that primarily affects black people, right? Black people, yes. And that's something yes. that we need to change. And that's why I'm so that's I'm glad that we need to change. Yeah. And I'm glad that we got you online because it's important for people to realize that um, HIV doesn't choose color. It, it, exactly. it affects it affects everyone across the board. You know, Dr. Yes. Tyra, do you have a comment? Yes, I'd like to just say you are a very brave woman and I'm very proud of you for doing what you've done over the years because I wish that everybody who lives with HIV would be brave enough to be able to say, I'm positive. I'm on treatment, I'm doing well, and I'm strong. You know, I say to patients, there's, two, two, there's a few little issues. We've talked about stigmatization and testing of babies or children at school. I think that is a very difficult and controversial issue. But I think more importantly, if mandatory testing mandatory testing of all pregnant women took place we would then know which children were infected so we wouldn't need to test them later on it's because some women are not tested in pregnancy find out later that they're positive then we find out that they're infected children which is still a massive problem in this country in the uk we are in 20 well i worked there for 25 years in the 20, the, the last 20 years, we had one positive infected child, sorry, an infected child, one out of an entire cohort. We had a predominantly female-based um, cohort of patients from largely sub-Saharan Africa, the females that we looked after in, in London. One, and that baby was infected because the mother refused to take antiretrovirals in the third trimester of pregnancy. She didn't like them, said no, and she had an infected baby. So that deals with that story. But I also, you know, just from a human, from a humanistic perspective would like to say that I would feel safer having sex with somebody who tells me that they're HIV positive on treatment than having random sex with somebody who doesn't discuss it. You are safer in society to have sex with whoever, with whomever you like. If they discuss HIV with you and say, I'm on treatment, I'm well. And I say to young patients, would you, as you said earlier, have sex with somebody who is, um, you know, who's positive and they say no. I say, well, then you're an idiot because that's the safest person to have sex with. Not somebody who doesn't talk about it and says, oh, don't worry, you don't need to use condoms, I'm clean. Mm. What does clean mean? You used soap last night? That's my question. It's true, and I think a lot of it, a lot of it is, is just us talking and talking and talking like we do on this show, on social media, on Facebook, on, on, you know, at conferences like the one that you're at, Olga. Um, and, and just sharing information and, and helping people slowly change change the ideas about 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 living with HIV. And granted, I mean let's let's not, let's not pretend that we'll be able to reach everybody, right? We won't be able to reach everybody. But the one person who you're able to educate and 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 change is 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 one better person out there in the world. Yes. And your children, Olga, how old are your children? 
My eldest is 18 years now. I am 40 now. My eldest is 18 and I've got a 12-year-old and I've got a 4 and a 3-year-old. They're all negative. And I was also... But, the, but remember when the one of 12 years, I was already positive. Yes. So that was my first time I had to go on. At first, I also refused the ARVs. But then I was so blessed to have a good gynecologist that explained to me because I was also skeptic about what's going to happen with the baby, what do mm. my baby must form or blah, blah, blah. That because it's just different and just lots of tablets because then it was still the five tablets. I think I had to take five or four tablets. But then I took a chance and um, my child is perfect and uh, she, they gave me the syrup after the baby was born. I think it was for six weeks or six yes, months. Six I'm not weeks. sure. Yeah, six and weeks. And you know what? With my, my third child, I even went as far as breastfed. I breastfed my children. I live normal. You know, I ever since I went on ARV 20, 2007 uh, with my second uh, born, yes. I unfortunately I had to because after my second born, I wanted to go off treatment since uh, ARVs was doing well. And that's the problem. And the, uh, the, the four people is doing that. Remember the ARVs totally at one stage, it totally suppresses your viral load and yes. then it will go to a stage that when you test it will only, on the a larger test, it will show one stripe and then you think, oh, well, I am free of the disease. There's no such. It's just a viral load that's been sub- totally suppressed that it will even show one line on the, on the test. So my gynecologist and my doctor also advised me, don't stop the ARV, yeah. rather stay on it. And that's what people must know. Even though you feel healthy, I felt so good. I was not tired anymore. I had a perfect pregnancy. Uh, but don't stop your treatment. And the other thing I also want to add is now with what I learned through the conference um, is that it's not even a chronic disease anymore it's a manageable disease yes that's the nice thing and there's so much new ARVs on the market that's coming I am so excited about it and I speak openly about my ARV that's the one thing people must do stop hiding your ARVs because you will give people reason to speak about or have something to gossip about no, thank so you so much. Yeah. Drink your ARVs in the open so people can see, so people can start getting used to the idea. Thank you so much, Olga. It was really great having you on the show. And thank you so much for sharing your story because I think you've encouraged a lot of people with everything that you've shared. I hope you enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on the show. So before we wrap up the show, Dr. Mervyn Tyra, we have a question. So this is a question from Anonymous. And Anonymous says... I just want to know how long it takes for an individual's CD4 count to get to below 200. Um, is it possible that it can happen two months after infection? That is a very good question. And indeed, yes, it can. When people are exposed to the virus for the very first time, not everybody gets sick. Um, we talk of primary HIV infection or seroconversion illness. Now, the statistics probably show somewhere between... 25 to 50% of patients, depending on communities and, you know, whatever, uh, that will be sick like a flu-like illness when they first get infected. Some seroconversion illnesses are so critically bad that a person can go from being HIV negative, exposed to HIV, and deteriorate to 
you know, extreme immunosuppression with very, very low CD4 counts below 200 within six months. Yeah. And they can die. And the thing is, as, as, as HIV clinicians, we have no way of knowing where you fall. So we don't... Un- unless, yeah. Cindy, unless you have had regular tests. Yes. So if somebody tests every year or every six months and then suddenly becomes sick and there is a big suspicion, then you can do other tests mm-hmm. that are not even HIV tests. So you can do viral load tests, HIV DNA quantitation. You, you can do all sorts of tests mm-hmm. to actually prove that this is but, HIV but related. But you have to have been testing regularly. Exactly. Yeah. But some people can control their virus very, very well. And after that seroconversion illness or after being exposed to the virus, depending on the level of your viral load, we've known throughout the last 35 years, well, since 1997 when viral loads were introduced into more regular routine practice, that if you have high viral loads as your set point, you will progress more rapidly Mm. so a high viral load predicts rapid progression a low viral load viral loads under 10,000 copies for example that maintain means that a person's going to live for a much longer time and some people can go 10 to 15 years plus without any medication before they find out that they're sick but those people are infecting people so whether your viral load is high or low these days in terms of the modern concept of treatment as prevention and treatment to keep you alive and healthy and give you a better life expectancy than the average man in the street because the average man in the street never goes to the doctor do they they only go when they're sick whereas an hiv positive person who gets seen every six months and has their blood tests checked and looks and they're looked after with a sort of a keen eye from a medical practitioner or whichever healthcare provider is providing that Things will be picked up much sooner and people, I'm sure that in time to come, we will see that people living with HIV will have a better life expectancy than those who do not have HIV. Well, well, thank you so much, Mervyn, for being on the show. It was really great chatting to you and I, I love, you know, you're always very insightful. And thank you to all the guests that joined us. In closing, I'd like to say that U equals U is science, right? Undetectable equals untransmittable. If you're living with HIV and you're on treatment and your viral load is undetectable, you cannot transmit HIV. Sidebar with Cindy. Every Monday to Thursday, 7 to 8 p.m. on Kaya FM 95.9. Rewinding. Rewinding Kaya FM on FM Rewind. Visit kayafm.co.za for more.